When you think of public space, do you think of peeing? And let's be honest here, and put our weird societal stigma about something we all do aside, I bet you've spent a lot more time thinking about peeing, like where you were going to go, thanks to the global pandemic. Places like cafes and restaurants and other quasi-public restrooms, they were locked down. And so, while parks were already doing a lot of heavy lifting for us, as gathering places and mental health refuges and places to live for some, it had to carry that load too. And I think many of us realized they weren't equipped to do so. How many of us, in the last two years, wanted to get a little nature walk in, but had to cut things short because, well, nature called? That's just one way in which, during the pandemic, Many of us found ourselves in public spaces we thought were meant for us, the public, but didn't actually seem to be serving us. But here's the thing. What we've learned about public spaces during that time, and the way we needed them and found them wanting, there are plenty of folks who felt that way, well before COVID-19 was a thing. The jagged and awkward design of some park benches, for example, makes it such that no one can lie down. Women or other vulnerable citizens may avoid walking through dimly lit streets alone at night. Accessibility based on how your body works, whether you're really young or quite old, have specific disabilities, or any number of factors that might dictate or restrict your mobility, those can affect how you can or cannot engage with a space that is supposed to also be for you. Public spaces are often the best parts of a city. When you live in density, it's essential that, pandemic or no, we have places to go that aren't where you live or work or where you have to buy something to be there. These have to be free places where anyone can go to feel safe, to rest, and to commune. So will the realizations we've had about being unable to go number one help us realize that truly public and accessible spaces should be, well, our number one priority? Welcome back to City Space. In this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. We'll be hearing directly from three experts on how public spaces are failing people in ways we might not have considered, and what we can do moving ahead to make those spaces work better. For them, but also for all of us. I'm Adrian Lee. First up, we talk to Adri Stark. She's a project manager at Park People and one of the authors of the 2021 Canadian Cities Parks Report, which surveyed more than 3,000 Canadians in 32 cities, both park users and park staff alike. As park use soared during the pandemic, Adri was struck by how they've been used and continue to be used, including, as we saw in the news, a place for some unhoused people to live. So I asked Adri, With public parks seemingly expected to be everything to everyone in a city, how can we reach some form of equity? Who exactly are parks for? Parks meet community needs, and that means that they are um, adapted to to different groups of people. Like, there's no one set of people that they serve. For example, Mississauga has a new park that um, 
allows for the cultural practice of scattering ashes into a river, which is very significant in Sikh and Hindu cultures. It's, it's meeting the community needs. And then, and I think parks at their worst are really places for no one. So we see that with defensive design where, um, you know, the classic example being a park bench with an extra armrest in the middle that prevents people from lying down. But um, I think a less sort of spoken about aspect of defensive design is how it can look like the absence of critical pieces of park infrastructure. So um, the absence of washrooms, the absence of drinking fountains, the absence of comfortable seating, um, the absence of, you know, shelter from the elements, um, all of these things that are sort of intentionally left out of parks because they're thought to attract undesirable behaviors, um, they really make parks inhospitable for all people. We know that encampments right now are sort of a challenge across the country. 90% of the 32 cities that we surveyed across Canada uh, said that rising homelessness in parks was a challenge that they were dealing with. Um, so it's such a huge and sort of universal issue right now. The reality is sheltering in a park is the safest option for many folks right now. Um, you know, pandemic has sort of overwhelmed the shelter system and um, there were issues with the shelter system to begin with around accessibility for folks with pets or partners or who might use substances. The aggressive shutdown of encampments in cities across Canada really suggested failures of all kinds, you know, of governments, uh, but also of sort of letdowns of what is available as far as social services, uh, of local residents who might not have built that empathy of society writ large. You know, what did those shutdowns of those encampments say to you? Oh, like that's that's hard because it's heartbreaking. Um, it's it's uh, it's scary. Like I don't know if people realize the extent to which um, encampment evictions harm folks. Like um, it, in addition to sort of the material violence of often destroying people's belongings, it, it uproots people from their support networks and. Um, uh, you know, whether that's local organizations that they frequent near the park where they've been living or whether it's other encampment residents that actually have created a sense of community and safety for people in the park. Um, and it pushes people into more isolated, um, isolated spaces where they can be subject to increased safety risks. I think from a parks department perspective, it, it sort of highlights that a lot of park depart parks departments are sort of ill-equipped to deal with these bigger issues right now. Like uh, if you think of the typical city park staff, they often come from like a natural resource management background and um, uh, consider themselves more on the environmental side. So it's really difficult to be tasked with responding to such a massive problem in parks. So I do have empathy there around um, how it's difficult on, on both sides, but it's, yeah, it's just been devastating and honestly really scary. Like I was speaking to someone um, who's living in a shelter hotel a couple of weeks back and um, he said that two of his friends had actually just been banned from all parks and community centers in Toronto for, for a year. And that's a pretty scary tactic because when you are dependent on public spaces for your survival and you lose access to them, like, what do you do? But I, I suppose on the bright side, since this is sort of an unprecedented issue in cities across the country right now, and it is sort of having this moment where cities are really, really struggling with it, there's a lot of opportunity to take different approaches. And in a way, there's almost nowhere to go but up because the situation has been so dire so far. Parks folks tend to come from sort of green space backgrounds, whereas what I think we're seeing now as far as the conversation around housing encampments and evictions are really around parks, not really at all to do with greenery, but more to do with them as public space. And how are ideas around 
what is a public space? Who is it for? Why is it there? Are questions we're suddenly asking with renewed vigor. You know, the, the example you said just now of the uh, the folks who've been banned from parks. I, I mean, you know, banning someone from something is a tough go. But banning someone someone from something as as really essential as as sort of rights prescribed as a public space is something that I think the average person doesn't understand how how damning that is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like I think there is sort of growing recognition. I would say that the natural aspect of parks is still important to people. Like nature during the pandemic has been such a respite for folks, but I absolutely agree that there is more of a shift toward understanding parks as sort of community hubs in a way. Like Something that I've been thinking a lot, like coming back to this discussion around defensive design and who is excluded from parks, you know, at their worst, parks are sort of built to control us. But what if they were built to care for us instead? I personally believe that it's just it's just a part of human nature to care for places that care for us. And yeah, I would love to see more parks built that sort of encourage and allow for that reciprocity. What does that look like? You know, uh, granting, of course, that every park and every city and every, you know, all of these, all these contexts are going to be individual and unique. But what are, are there sort of elements that would make that reciprocity more possible? Are there, are there elements that would more or less not guarantee us a good park, but give us good outcomes as far as having those kinds of accessible parks? I think it comes back to just like deep community engagement because there's no one size fits all perfect park. It's 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 going to look different in every community. So, you know, I think a lot of times cities sort of measure how successful their park system is based on the amount of hectares of parkland they have for their population or they'll set distance targets like every resident should live within a 5 minute walk. And yes, those things are are crucially important, but it's really only scratching the surface of what makes parks actually accessible and sort of live up to their potential as as community hubs. And to go deeper, you have to actually learn how to tailor the community to meet or how to tailor the park to meet community needs. So here at Park People, we work with a network of over a thousand community park friends groups. So that's like, you know, your, your friends of Regent Park. And they are just really excellent resources that cities could tap into to better understand, like, what are those local nuances and, and how do you create an inviting space for residents of, of each community? Because, you know, another thing, a shift that we've seen during the pandemic has just been a focus on local neighborhood parks. Like, typically, it's the big downtown signature parks that get all of the attention, but we've really seen sort of the local neighborhood pocket parks be the workhorses of the pandemic. And so I think for cities, sort of a way to improve parks is just really focusing on those spaces and, and, and understanding what are those community needs and understanding that a great park looks different in every neighborhood. That was Adri Stark from Park People. We'll have more after this. I'm a six foot two man, so maybe it's not coincidental that I've never really been worried about any aspect of city life. But I know that that's a product of a metric ton of privilege. Leslie Kern wrote a whole book on this called Feminist City, Claiming Space in a Man-Made World, that shows how my comfort is, in some ways, by design, baking social inequalities by gender into the very glass and pavement of our cities. Leslie's also the director of Women's and Gender Studies at Mount Allison University, and I spoke with her about what public spaces might look like if they were built to better accommodate how women actually live their lives. Here's one good example, and I I promise I think about other things, public restrooms. Here's part of our conversation. 
you argue in your book that cities in a number of different ways haven't quite figured out how to make public spaces that work really for, you know, half their citizens. So how does it come to pass that such a big swath of people feel failed by places where they live, uh, where vast majorities of people actually live in North America? Well, historically, the professions that have been responsible for building, designing, planning the city have been very male-dominated. And even to this day, architecture is a very male-dominated profession. There are more women in city planning roles than there used to be, but often uh, they are not kind of at the top of that hierarchy. And I always like to say that, you know, you can't solve a problem that you uh, don't know exists. So it might not be that the, the men, those people in the roles that are, are, are planning and so on are trying to exclude women, but if they're not really aware of the different experiences of women compared to men, then they might not be able to kind of think those two or three steps ahead to, okay, how will this public space function for someone who's pushing a stroller or someone who uh, needs a different kind of restroom facility or somebody who might experience uh, fear after dark, those sorts of questions. So what does the the failure for women look like? How does it sort of manifest in a day-to-day situation? I think one of the things that we can point to is the fact that, you know, still to this day, women take on more caregiving responsibilities, both within the home and in uh, terms of relationships in general. So those caregiving responsibilities end up making women's day-to-day lives look different. So for example, women's Uh, Journeys to paid work often involve multiple stops because they're dropping children at daycare, they're checking on an elderly parent, or they are, you know, picking up diapers or something for dinner on the way home. But transportation systems and networks haven't really evolved to pay attention to those differences. Women are more likely to be traveling with children, and that takes up more space. It takes up more time. Sometimes it costs more to have to pay for those children. So women often pay what we call a pink tax in um, many areas, transportation, but also housing as they're more likely to be single parents and therefore need, you know, better accommodations for children. Um, And as I've mentioned a few times already, you know, safety issues are a big concern for women in public space. And it's not just about putting up uh, better lighting, although that that is usually welcome, uh, but it's also about really paying attention to what women say they they need and want and the things that would actually you know make their lives both easier and safer in the city. And as that relates to city design, I mean it seems like cities, you know, post-industrial revolution really were made for your sort of, you know, paid laborer, right? Your paid worker. But what you're talking about here is not just uh, uh, paid work but also unpaid work, the, the sort of unpaid work that tends to be traditionally for women, right? Or seen as for women. Yes. And I would argue that care work, that unpaid labor is uh, very rarely anywhere to be found in urban planning, especially in North America. Some uh, European cities have adopted more of a gender mainstreaming approach and they do pay more attention to caregiving. But it's like we continue to assume that all of that unpaid labor will just somehow magically happen in the home. We don't need to plan for it. We don't need to make it a public issue. We don't need to bring it into public space. You know, planners and city politicians don't need to pay attention to it. But of course, as we've sort of been reminded during the pandemic, you can't have the public realm and paid work without all of that unpaid labor going on in the home. 
Right. And and so what what does it look like if if that stuff doesn't magically happen, as you sort of say? What 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 would it look like? Well, I think one of the impacts that we've seen again over the pandemic is around the world, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of women being pushed out of the paid workforce, right? So the inability to juggle the the intense demands of, you know, homeschooling your children, <laughs> looking after sick people, um, and trying to do your, your paid job maybe from home or not being able to do it at all because you can't do it from home. So the, the consequences of that, you know, it really means that we have not built a very robust public collective system for care. We continue to rely on it being done in the home. Um, and the, the, the system kind of breaks down when we um, have a crisis like the pandemic. One thing that I find uh, really interesting and you've raised uh, is about gender inequity in terms of distribution of public restrooms. And this is something that's been uh, going on for for years, you know, well before the pandemic. Um, you know, it's as easy as folks noticing that if you go to, say, a stadium or a large building, you're seeing, or a mall, say, you're seeing lines for women's bathrooms in a way that are not happening for men. So the same amount of space is devoted to each bathroom, even though biologically speaking, there is a fundamental difference in how men and women use and experience that space and thus uh, a difference in terms of uh, how that public space is used effectively and efficiently. So can you speak a bit to the failure of public space for women? Yes, the bathroom is such a great example. You know, I never thought I would spend all this time talking about bathrooms, but it turns out it's a really great angle to start to understand, as you say, some of these public space inequities. The issue of, of having, you know, just equal square footage for men and women, as you point out, is one of those cases where we have equality, but not equity, because we haven't actually paid attention to the differences, both biological, as you say, but also social, in that, again, women are more likely to be uh, performing caregiving functions in the bathroom with either children and babies or uh, disabled people or elderly people that they're caring for and therefore require more space and more time and, and different sorts of facilities. Now, of course, I think those should be expanded to all bathrooms because it's not just a matter of making sure that women keep doing that labor. It's about sharing it amongst all genders. Uh, but, but also, you know, recognizing that um, you know, concerns about safety, cleanliness, all of these sorts of things, often just the very design of the bathroom itself doesn't suit uh, the way that women and girls typically use them. So there's a, a great potential, I think, for you just paying attention to the humble space of the bathroom and recognizing that if you have things like gender-inclusive bathrooms, safe, clean bathrooms, um, bathrooms for, for families and so on, then you can actually bring more people into public space. You know, we, we don't really know the numbers, but there are probably lots of people who really avoid being out in public space because they don't know whether they'll be able to find a suitable bathroom uh, when they need it. How can public spaces help with that kind of stuff? What, what can we do around uh, building public spaces that better support that kind of, uh, you know, unpaid labor? Sure. Part of it, I think, is kind of bringing the human element back into public space. You know, as we've been told in the pandemic to take our socializing outdoors as much as possible and so on, many people found that in their cities, there weren't a lot of comfortable places to sit down. There wasn't uh, public toilets. There was a lack of you know, fresh water and shade and shelter. Many of our cities have kind of been hardened, whether it's out of fears of homelessness or drug use or even um, 
fears like crime and terrorism, we've, we've taken out those elements that make it enjoyable. So a great first step would be bringing the human back in. And when we do that, we make, I think, it possible for more caregiving elements, for more um, interpersonal relationships and so on to be brought out of the, you know, pro- private and and hidden space of the home. So that could include everything from more spaces for children's learning in public to, um, you know, spaces for social gatherings to uh, places where people can do caregiving labor, like uh, feeding people, community kitchens, all of those kinds of things. More on how to think about public spaces after this. These other demographics that our public spaces are failing They have one advantage in a way, and that's that they're visible. We can see how we're letting them down so long as we look. That's not always so true of folks with disabilities, because those categories cover such vast ground and such a diverse array of needs. Anna Zivartz knows that problem well. She's the director of the Disability Mobility Initiative Program out of Washington, and she was born with nystagmus, a genetic condition that means her eyes are always shaking. That means there's a city-built limit on the number of ways she can easily get around. So she's passionate about cities prioritizing transportation that works for everyone. Here's Anna. Our roadways are actually, you know, for many cities are the largest piece of public space. And a lot of that space currently is is dedicated to moving cars as quickly as, as possible. But, you know, I think airports are also public space. You know, I've had some really pretty scary situations in airports when I wasn't able to read signs and got directed the wrong way. And, you know, there, there's lots of ways our built environment isn't necessarily designed for people uh, who are low vision, who are blind, who are deaf, who have sensory disabilities, who have physical disabilities, who have intellectual disabilities. We aren't thinking broadly or inclusively enough about the kinds of ways people want and need to be in space. So you were saying that cities really struggle to, you know, make public space accessible for folks with disabilities. What, how does that manifest exactly? What, what, does that, what does that mean for communities who have such disabilities? I think it results in a lot of exclusion and isolation. You know, unfortunately, that's sort of the status quo. I think it's sort of this reinforcing cycle where you don't see people or know that people with different different disabilities are in public space because, you know, if people have the ability to sort of master disability, often they do to not have to deal with that stigma. And if they don't, too often our, our public spaces are set up in ways where we are just, it's too much of a hassle or it's just completely impossible to be in space. And so we are at home, we are isolated, we're not engaging with the public, and then the public doesn't understand that we exist and have needs that aren't getting met. And it can be so tough because disabilities come in so many different forms, right? I mean, you you yourself talked a bit about that, about how uh, in some ways you need to demonstrate, you know, signifiers of disability so that people know it so that they can provide you that that kind of accessibility. Is that right? I mean, how how did it, how did it come to be that we need to uh, folks who have disabilities have to show that they have it to advocate for themselves? Yeah, that's such a good question. Such a tricky question because I, you know, in on one hand, you want people to feel comfortable identifying as disabled. You know, there's there's can be a lot of pride in the community in doing that. 
but there's also a lot of stigma. And so people should have the ability to not have to, to identify or not have to be explicit and still have access needs. And I think I, I would like to see a world where people can express their access needs and those access needs get met. And we don't have to you know, have any kind of proof when you start to require people to, to document or you know, prove that they really need something, you end up excluding people who need it and just don't have the resources to get that proof. And, you know, one thing that uh, I'm working to wrap my mind around over the course of this episode, and and I think this is broadly true, is just this idea that if you are someone who does not have that lived experience or someone who who does not understand what it's like to not have something, it can be really hard to see that as an issue, right? And and I don't even necessarily just mean with disability concerns or, or even city building things. This is just the solitude of thought, I guess, of I know what affects me and I know what happens in my life. And if that's enough folks, then you wind up ignoring the issues of folks whose uh, lenses you can't see through. And so it seems even harder in in this context where you have so many folks with disabilities, folks with mobility issues, ways to to get them all together to make sure that the idea of a space that is truly for everyone can really be for everyone. The struggle with, with making something whole from so many disparate perspectives. Yeah, no, it is it is really tricky, right? And recognizing that just because I am at the table and I'm low vision, while I I can talk to other people with different kinds of disabilities, different experiences of of racism, different experiences of sexism, ageism, I don't have that lived experience. And so, yeah, it does that is something that has to be balanced and you're never going to have everyone at that table. But I think trying to get as many different perspectives as you can is important. So in our first episode of the podcast, we talked about uh, the 15-minute city, this really buzzy concept around the idea that all necessary amenities should be no more than a short 15-minute walk or bike ride away. Uh, And, you know, there's lots of good reasons for this kind of thinking. Uh, A lot of folks have signed on. Major cities have decided to try to integrate that into their city building. Um, But there's also been notes of caution around what it means to uh, build a city around something so rigorous around personal mobility. I wonder if you can speak to uh, what your, I mean, what's your take on the 15-minute city? Yeah, I think it really erases a lot of the complexity of how people move differently. And, and it can take a lot longer for someone to get the same distance. I think on a really broad level, it's that we start to prioritize speed over access. And so it's more important for things to happen quickly, for people to be able to go places uh, quickly versus making a system that could actually allow everyone to get where they need to go. But it may it may take a little longer. It may be a little less efficient. You know, what is my 15-minute city uh, walking is really different from the 15-minute city of someone who uses a walker, for example, or, you know, when I'm with a, my kid, how long it takes us to go a few blocks is really different than how long it would take someone who's just able-bodied and walking quickly. And so I, you know, I I worry in the 15-minute city conversation, we're erasing a lot of those complexities. And yes, it's good to have things, you know, services located near where people live. It's good to have that increased access. But if we're just looking at it at this sort of assumption that everyone is able-bodied and 15 minutes is 15 minutes for everybody, you you start to ignore some of the, the, the other dynamics that are at play and perhaps not meet the needs of people for whom a 15-minute walk or a 15-minute bike ride just isn't something, you know, feasible that's going to work for them. So... 
we need high-quality public spaces. And building better ones is going to require thinking about cities through different lenses. If we can't do that, how can we make places that really are better for everyone? On the next episode of City Space, we're going to focus on the state of lower-income housing. Specifically, we're going to talk about the issues that have cropped up around the financialization of the housing market and how that's starting to happen in the rental market, too. What happens to a city when housing becomes an asset, first and foremost? City Space is produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnston. This episode was written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee, with research assistance from Shannon Clark. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thanks to our guests this episode, Adri Stark, Leslie Kern, and Anna Zivarts. If you like what you're hearing so far, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get recognized so we can keep doing the work we do. And if you have suggestions, you can email the show at podcasts at globeandmail.com. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.